You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. When I was a kid, I was absolutely horrified by the Wizard of Oz movie. Maybe you were like me. Maybe it was a movie that was just a point of just deep, deep trauma. In fact, I would say that it's probably weirder if the first time that you saw The Wizard of Oz, it didn't at least cause you some sort of internal discomfort, right? From the very beginning, the lady that was riding the bicycle, which I appreciate, I love riding a good bicycle, but that woman was horrifying. Right off the bat, you just think, "Mm, something's not right with this lady. That is a mean lady. And then you get into the whole dream thing or the coma fever dream thing that Dorothy has, and the first thing you realize is that a house has smashed a woman, and then her feet roll up. Why do they do that? I don't know why they did that. That's a horrifying thing to see as a child. And then we have to get into the whole flying monkey thing, and those were horrifying looking. And the Wicked Witch was, in fact, very wicked and overwhelming. And so I couldn't watch that whole movie for quite some time. It took a long time for me to watch it. And by the time that I really could watch it, I just hated it anyway. But the Wizard of Oz movie kind of disturbs me now for a little bit of a different reason than it did when I was a child. When I was a child, it was just the scary imagery that went into the movie. But now there's something in the Wizard of Oz that's a little too real. Because by the end of the movie, the whole idea, right, is that Dorothy and her ragtag group of friends are off to see the wizard. And they're following the yellow brick road to get there because they all need something. Dorothy needs to go home. And then you have the scarecrow that needs a brain and the tin man that needs a heart and the lion that needs courage. And that doesn't feel like it fits with the rest because, I mean, I know what a brain is and I know what a heart is, but how do you, what is the courage, maybe a stomach. Maybe he needed a stomach. I don't know, but they all needed something, and this wizard was supposed to be the one who could provide it. And so they go in, and they see the wizard, and he is this great and awesome, powerful, horrific floating head thing with all the pyro and everything going on. And that right there looks like someone who is able to give you some courage if you need it, or a heart if you need it, or a brain if you need it, or send you home. That looks like a great and powerful being. But of course, and now if you haven't seen Wizard of Oz, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, but I feel like a hundred years kind of passes the statute of limitations. You probably should have seen it by now. But just in case you don't know, Dorothy peeks behind a curtain. And she sees behind this curtain, this tiny, fragile, feeble little man controlling all of this stuff to make the wizard come to life. And the famous line there is, oh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Because imagine the disappointment, imagine the hopelessness, the anger that would come in, thinking now you found this great, powerful wizard who could make all of your dreams come true and fulfill all of your needs, only to find out that he's just a dude who happened to be really good with computers or whatever steampunk materials that he's using back there. But the reason why that's so scary and overwhelming at times is because chances are you know that feeling. Think about how many phrases and idioms we have in our normal language that prepares us for this kind of experience. Ignorance is bliss. Don't meet your hero. 
Be careful. You might not like what you got once you finally get it. All these things that we say over and over and over again, basically to prepare people, hey, you are going to be disappointed. And the writer of Ecclesiastes knew this very well. Because this is a problem that has existed pretty much as long as humanity. Even if we look all the way back in the biblical narrative, some of the first stories are about disappointment with knowledge and wisdom and getting what you think you wanted. So if this is the state of our world, if this is pretty much a guarantee in life, that at some point you're going to be pursuing something, you're finally going to get to look behind the curtain and realize that it's not nearly what you thought it was, and that's going to lead to heartache and disappointment. How do followers of Jesus live in this kind of a world without becoming jaded or miserable or hostile? Well, we're going to look at that today. As we see the writer of Ecclesiastes lay this problem out, and as will be the case with pretty much every sermon through this series, we'll find Jesus give a better answer. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I want to read verses 12 through 18. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel to Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, it is all vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Almighty God, you know how disappointing life can be for us. Jesus experienced those same disappointments. You know how exhausting it could be. It can be for us to chase after things that provide no satisfaction or meaning or hope. And God, you know that we are prone to cynicism, to bitterness, to being cynical, jaded people. But Father, we thank you that you've given us a better way, a better hope, and a better wisdom that enables us to navigate this life and all of its disappointment filled with joy and peace. And so God, we ask and pray that you help us to learn to do that by learning to seek after Christ above all else. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this teacher here has a lot going on. 
Now, we looked last week, if you weren't here last week, we looked at this character of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes as this amalgamation of all these different types of people, particularly rooted in the character and the nature of Solomon, borrowing so much from the life of Solomon, but then just adding in all of these other elements to be an avatar for just a person who has achieved completion. And he gives us his resume. I, the teacher, have been given or have been king over Israel. I've been to the highest places of power and authority. I've applied my heart to seek and to teach out all or to search out all wisdom that's done under heaven. He goes on to say that I was more wise, surpassing all of those who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This teacher says, listen, when it comes to knowledge, I'm unsurpassed. I was king. I had all the resources at the palm of my hand. I went out and searched all the wisdom of the world. And guess what? I acquired it. I know everything. I've seen everything. I've done everything. I've experienced everything. And when we look at that and we think that about that, oftentimes for a lot of people, that kind of looks like the ideal situation. That's a life that most people would want or even be jealous of. Because we think about wisdom and knowledge as this great advantage. If I was just a little bit wiser, if I just had a little more knowledge, I applied for a job this week, but it's an entry-level job, but they say that there's experience required and I don't have experience. How do I get a job doing that? We think that this idea of experience and knowledge and wisdom and influence is what it's going to take to get us in a place in life where we want to be. And so we look at our life and we start to feel inferior. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not experienced enough. Maybe my life hasn't been adventurous enough. Maybe I haven't seen and done all the things that other people have. And so I'm at this disadvantage where I'll never reach the same kind of heights or experiences as somebody else. And so we grow up as the kind of people maybe hiding our report cards or sheepishly navigating through life, hoping that people don't figure out that maybe we don't have the same knowledge or information that somebody else does. And it leads to these feelings of of great inferiority. I remember just on a very small scale, when I first decided that I wanted to try mountain biking, right? This is over a decade ago. And so one of my first stops was to go to a bike shop. That just seemed to make a lot of sense, right? If I want to get into biking, I want to go talk to the people who know about biking, And so I went in because I thought, I've ridden a bike my whole life. I know how bikes work. And I walk into this bicycle shop and all of a sudden I see all these things I've never seen. And the people are talking and using language that I've never heard before, talking about a bike. And usually in the first couple experiences I had here, not only did I feel really out of place because I didn't have any information about all this, but the guys behind the counter didn't really have a whole lot of time for me. There wasn't really a lot of of helpfulness because they just treated me literally inferior. And it wasn't until I learned some things and started getting some experience under my belt where now I feel like I can walk into a bicycle shop and say the right words and, and use the right terminology. So now I'm part of the club, right? Now I can be welcomed in. Now I don't quite feel so inferior. But if you can have those feelings of inferiority when it comes to just the very simple, small things in life, things that don't really ultimately matter, Of course, we can feel small and meaningless and powerless when we don't have all of this wisdom and experience that maybe other people around us seem to have. But this teacher here, he's accomplished it. 
He's got all the experience. He's got all the wisdom. He's got all the knowledge. And how does he see that? How does he reflect on that? Look at verse 13. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And this is his summary. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He said, all the things that you want, all the things that are important, all the things that matter, all the influence and experience that you could possibly have or want or desire, I've achieved it all. And you know what I found out about it? It makes me sad. It is an unhappy business to have this much knowledge and experience and this wealth of understanding. In fact, he kind of puts that on God saying, why would you make this part of our world? Because the more I know, the sadder I get. In verse 14 through 17, he continues, and I love the imagery he uses here. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, here's that word, it's vanity or meaningless. Striving after the wind. And I love that picture there. Because if you walk outside on a windy day, you can feel the wind. It's a very tangible thing, right? You can identify which way the wind is blowing. And I know you've probably done this too, but when you're a kid, you get this desire just to run with the wind, right? It makes you feel so much faster when the wind is blowing at your back and you can just chase the wind down. And so you can run with the wind, but you can never catch it. And if we were going to spend all of our time just striving after the wind, running into the wind, you could run. And at first, it might be fun. It might be exhilarating. It might just fill you with energy and excitement. But here's the deal. You're eventually going to get tired and the wind never will. The wind could blow for hours and hours and days and days without ever ceasing. And you would just slowly but surely become tired and then exhausted and then burdened. And then not even be able to put one foot in front of the other. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that's what it's like searching after this kind of knowledge and wisdom and experience. At first, it was exciting. At first, I was running into the wind and gaining all of this. But the further I went, the more I realized that this is a pool that never fills up. And when I achieve one thing, there's something else on the other side. And we're going to see this as a constant theme through the book of Ecclesiastes, whether it comes to riches or influence or power or even something like righteousness, that you can strive after these things, but the cup never fills up. And when you reach one goal, there's always something on the other side. And it goes from something that brings you great joy and excitement to eventually, no matter how good the thing may be, it becomes exhausting. And it kind of makes you sad. The teacher wanted to know it all and see it all, experience it all. And when he did, he hated what he saw. Verse 18 says, For in as much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What a hopeless statement but it's probably a feeling that you're familiar with. The more you know, the more it kind of hurts. The more experiences you have, the more you realize how dark and broken this world could be. The more you strive after all these things, the more you realize they're not able to satisfy you. And it's such a recurring theme in our life that we have an entire genre of movies dedicated to this, right? 
When you think about the buddy cop genre, this is pretty much the idea. Now, sure, you've got all the police stuff and you've got all the action and adventure that goes into it that helps engage you, but all these kind of buddy cop movies have the same basic premise. Usually you have one younger officer who is this either super idealist kind of personality or somebody that comes in with a lot of energy, a lot of vigor, just ready to change the world. And then you have somebody who's been in the game a little bit longer, maybe just a number of years. Maybe it's an older person. They've just seen some things. They've been through some stuff. And all of that idealism, all that excitement, all that energy is just gone. And that's because the more you know, the more sorrow increases. The more experiences you have, the more you realize how broken things really are. Now, in a lot of these movies, the idea and the trajectory is that eventually the younger, more energetic personality kind of wins out and maybe redeems that older person back to the joy of the job and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is that's not usually how things work in life. And the writer of Ecclesiastes knew that, that very rarely are there times when we're able to restore that joy because the more we know and the deeper we go into things, the harder life can be. And you're probably very familiar with this idea in verse 18. You've probably felt this before, that the more you know, the sadder you are. And there's a reason for that. This world is is kind of messed up. And in fact, I think we can say from a biblical standpoint, this world is really messed up. This world is really broken. And the more we find out about it, the more we find out about the way the world works, the more we find out about the way the systems and governments are in place, the more the way we find out just about how our jobs work and how education works. Now, all these things work. The more we know about them, the more we realize that everything is so tragically broken. And this kind of knowledge can break your heart. And then on the other side of it, as that broken heart begins to put back together, it doesn't come back fleshy and soft, does it? Once you've had these kind of realizations before, once you've had your heart broken by the world, once you've had this knowledge increase your sorrow, everything kind of calcifies a little bit, doesn't it? And then you see these things again and you're not as surprised by them, you're not as hurt by them, you're not as broken by them because you're just building up all of these defenses. When I think about being a dad, there is this innate desire in in a parent's heart to kind of shelter your kids, right? And for a long time, because again, I've worked, I worked in student ministry for a long time, working with the CLC. I've seen and known a lot of kids and a lot of parents. And I've seen and known a lot of kids who were really, really sheltered, right? And no life experience at all. Their parents have kind of bubble wrapped everything. And I used to think, These parents did this because they want to keep their kids from being bad people, right? If I can protect my kid from all these influences, I can keep my kids from doing bad things. And maybe that's part of it. But on the other side of of being a parent, when I find myself wanting to shelter my kids, I'm very rarely worried that if they are experiencing something that it's going to make them a bad person. I really do have a sense of confidence that that Jesus is going to work in and through my family's life and through my church as you guys help raise my kids, that my kids are going to be okay. But my desire to shelter my kids comes out of the fact that when you look at a child and they have just this unbelievable optimism 
and they're able to see the beauty in so many things. I don't want that to go away. I don't want my kids to look at the world the way that I look at the world so often and see all of the broken places, see all the bad things. I don't want my kids to feel like they have to worry that somebody's constantly trying to scam them. Like when I got a phone call the other day that I answered because it looked like a local number and the guy said, hey, I'm with so-and-so security system and then was really pushy about trying to get it. And then I was like, was he trying to break into my house? And I have all these things going on because that's how we learn to see the world. I don't want my kids to see the world that way because this world is messed up. And the more we increase in knowledge, the more we increase in sorrow. So are we just destined to be the kind of people who are bitter cynics and nihilists? Or is the only other option that we just shelter ourselves and our children and our family, move out into the woods like that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, right? Just reestablish everything as far away as possible, put on rose-colored glasses and pretend like nothing's wrong? Are those the only options that we really have? No, of course not. There's a better way. I was thinking about Peter as all this was going on. Imagine developing the kind of boldness where you feel like you could correct Jesus. <laughs> like, what was he thinking, right? Because in this passage in Matthew, Peter just jumps in and he decides, hey, listen, it's time for me to just show Jesus what's up. Because clearly he has, he's, he's missed the point here. Oh, and do you mind going, my little clicker's not working here. Do you mind jumping ahead for me? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just laid out for the disciples a really troubling fact that they're going to Jerusalem and that Jesus is going to die. And now remember, Peter has just made a confession that Jesus is the son of God. Clearly he is all in on this. He believes this. He knows who Jesus is. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter says, No, Jesus, you're wrong. And I wonder if, you know, if you, when you're arguing with your parents as a kid or something, and just that one thing comes out that's a little bit too far, and you're just like, ah, you just try to grab it. For me, the biggest thing I remember was not a word, but a physical action, right? I was really hard to live with as a teenager. I know you probably can't imagine that because I'm such a delight and a treasure now, but it's true. I was a bit of a handful, especially as a teenager. And I remember I'd gotten in trouble for something. We were in this like huge heated thing because I couldn't just leave well enough alone. I was arguing with my parents. I was yelling back and forth, all this kind of stuff. And I just got so frustrated and so mad that I just punched the wall as hard as I could right in front of my parents. Now, it was probably like 10th grade, so I imagine I weighed all of about 118 pounds. So there was no danger that I was going to hurt the wall or myself. Not much happened here. But I do remember that the minute the hair on my knuckles touched the wall, I immediately thought that was a really bad idea. And it just escalated everything, right? All of a sudden, the trouble just went through the roof. And I wonder if that happened to Peter. If he says, no, we're not going to let this happen. I wish I could just put it back. Because sure enough, then Jesus runs in here. I love, I believe it's in Mark's telling of this. 
It says that Jesus, seeing the other disciples, then decided to rebuke Peter. And I like that it was not just that he was coming after Peter because he rebuked him, but it's like, oh, you said this in front of all of them too? You want to have this conversation in public? Fine, let's have this conversation in public. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And then Jesus turns and rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan, which had to feel super great for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. And here's what he said was the problem. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He said, Peter, you're looking at the wrong wisdom, my guy. You're not paying attention to what this is supposed to be. And I think that ties in really well with Ecclesiastes. Because in Ecclesiastes 1.14, the teacher says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And sure, that's just a nice catch-all terminology for everything in the world. But you see in the Old Testament, this language of under the sun, meaning particularly the things dealing with material stuff. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here, I've seen everything that this world has to offer. I've seen everything under the sun. And Peter is looking at Jesus and he's saying, there's no way in this world, based on my limited understanding of how this world works, that this is possibly what could be happening. But remember, the purpose of Jesus coming into the world is that our world was broken and kind of messed up. And so Jesus was bringing heaven to earth. Jesus was taking everything over the sun and introducing it back into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, when we see sin enter into God's good and perfect creation, it doesn't just tarnish us. It breaks the entire system and the entire world and separates heaven from earth. And Jesus comes to bring those two things back together. You see, when our knowledge increases about everything under the sun, we just see more filth and sin in broken places. But Jesus comes in to bring that heavenly wisdom so we can see with new eyes and understand with new minds. About five or ten years ago, my brother and I were picking up some side work, doing some remodeling and construction stuff. And it was one of those things where I didn't really know anything going in. And so we'd be given these jobs. We'd sit down, watch YouTube, figure out how it works, and then go in and do it, right? It was great. It was a really good system. But I remember in some of the things... I got really self-conscious about the work that we were doing. And we started talking about things like drywall and painting and siding houses and stuff, things that I feel like had to be very careful and exact. And so we'd go in and we'd look at our joints in the corners. We'd look at the paint that we did and you get really kind of perfectionistic about it, right? Oh my gosh, we're so bad at this. Look how, look how crooked this joint is. Look how spotchy this paint is. We're just really bad at this. And then I went back into my house And I started looking at my house to figure out what I could do different to be better at this job. And then I realized that the professionals that built our house also had janky joints, also had splotchy paint, also had all these things. I just never paid attention. In the house that we lived in before the house we live in now, I found out and discovered that one of the rooms that was built and added on was on this slope. The ceiling had like from one side to the other, there was an eight inch difference in height and from one side to the other. And I thought, oh my gosh, everyone is bad at this. And that's because in construction, perfection's not the idea, right? Especially on the budget that most people are trying to build houses with, you're just hoping that it's structurally sound and looks pretty good from a distance. 
And so when you look at construction like that, you look at a house and you think, wow, this is an amazing thing that was built. But then the closer you get and the more you start inspecting. And if you really just want to drive yourself crazy, just go inspect your house this afternoon and find all the little places that are going to drive you crazy for the rest of your life because it's not perfect. And so the closer you get, the more flaws you see. But when you think about something like fine art or fine woodworking or these things that require a high level of craftsmanship, You may stand off at a distance from a painting and think, wow, that looks really good. You may see a a, a nice piece of handcrafted furniture and think, wow, that's really pretty. But the idea there is that the closer you get to fine craftsmanship, the more and more you begin to see all the details that make it beautiful. It's this weird reverse thing that happens, right? You look at construction, the closer you get, you see the flaws and the broken places. For fine art, the closer you get, the more you see the mastery. And in the same way, when it comes to Jesus, the more we look at the world, the more we see the broken places, but the closer and closer we get to Jesus, the more and more we see the things that make him beautiful. And because of that, the things that make his world beautiful. In John chapter one, first John chapter one, excuse me. Whoa, we got a weird thing happening there. That was my fault. In John chapter one, we referenced this a few weeks ago. But as John lays out the reason for writing his book, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. John says the things that we got really close to in Jesus. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, And we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to know him closely and personally like we know Jesus so that you can have joy. The closer and closer you get to this world, The closer and closer you get to an understanding of how the world works, the more you are destined to find that everything is going to let you down. But the closer and closer that you get to Jesus, the more and more you are going to find hope and life and joy and peace. The more we know the world, the more we find heartache. But the more we know Christ, the more we find insurpassable joy. In Colossians, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those of Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. Again, this total opposite of Ecclesiastes saying, the more you grow in your understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom all things are hidden, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, I'm struggling so that you can know this, so that you can be knit together in love and you can have full assurance and satisfaction in Christ. He continues on in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21. And the same kind of idea now given to the church at Corinth. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So for John, the knowledge of Christ is joy. For Paul, it's assurance and being knit together. It's also the power of God in and through us. And so now all of this wisdom of the world that leads to nothing but emptiness, Jesus interjects knowledge of the gospel that gives us a fullness of assurance and hope, love, peace, and joy. We're reminded that Jesus is the better wisdom and that he enters into our life and shines a gospel light on all the dark and meaningless places and helps us to see that beauty. I think it's important to remember that joy and peace, true joy and true peace, are a distinctly Christian calling. Something that only followers of Christ are able to truly achieve. Because again, if you're looking for assurance and hope in your job, if you're looking it in your education, if you're looking for it in your wealth, if you're looking for it in your relationships, if you're looking for it in your experiences and the way you live life as an adventure, if you're looking for assurance and hope and joy in all of these things, they're eventually going to let you down because they're just chasing after the wind. But the closer and closer we grow to Christ, the more and more He fills us and satisfies us and gives us all that we need to have joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. But I think our world and our churches are too full of joyless, cynical Christians. Because we may say that we trust in Jesus. We may say that we find our hope in Christ, that we find our assurance in the gospel, but the reality is for too many of us, we are constantly trying to find that assurance and hope anywhere else. We're watching the news, hoping to find that assurance that if I just learn enough about the way that our political system works, then maybe I'll find assurance. If I can learn enough about how our government works, then maybe I can find some sort of assurance. Maybe if I just in, encounter enough world experiences, if I just adventure enough, then maybe I'll find some kind of hope and peace. If I learn enough theologically speaking, if I learn enough academically speaking, if I just immerse myself in all these different places, then maybe I'll find my hope and we leave the one who can give us hope behind. But we need to pray like the psalmist did, that God would restore us to the joy that comes only in our salvation. That we would only look for that assurance, that hope, that peace in Christ Jesus himself. And an amazing thing can happen when we do. Because our world is so broken, our world is so cynical, our world is so bitter and jaded and hopeless, that in a world of cynicism, joy is our apologetic. If we're able to live in the same world that everybody else lives in, if we're able to encounter the same circumstances that everybody else encounters, the same disappointments that everybody else experiences, but still be a people of joy, still be a people of peace, then we're able to stand out in the world in a way that can be seen and noticed like a light shining on a hill and people are going to come to us and they're going to say, wow, I, I don't understand how you can deal with that disappointment. I don't understand how you can deal with that shortcoming. I don't understand how you can go through what you've just been through and still find joy and still find peace. And you're able to say, well, I don't find my joy or my peace or my hope or my assurance in my circumstances, my wisdom, my knowledge. I find it in my Savior. And we can put Jesus on display through the joy that we have. John was writing to a church in persecution 
He said, I want you to know Jesus so that you can know joy. In Philippians, Paul, writing to a church in persecution as he is on death row in Rome, says, hey guys, rejoice in the Lord. Hey, trust in Jesus and he will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding because all of this stuff is temporary, but Jesus is eternal. We need to ask ourselves, are we striving after the wind? Or are we chasing the one who can calm it? We need to have this approach not only as we look through the book of Ecclesiastes, taking all these big questions and pointing them towards Jesus, because this needs to be how we live our lives. In every circumstance, in every time of need, in every time of success and triumph, we need to take all of those things and point them to Jesus and have Jesus illuminate those places in our lives so that even on our darkest day, Jesus will illuminate those places where the light is shining and he can remind us that he works all things to the good of those who love him and remind us that we have an assurance that goes beyond life, beyond wisdom, beyond the right now and throughout eternity. We need to find our wisdom and understanding not in a world that can only bring more heartache, but in Christ, who day by day can restore our minds and renew our hearts and set us firmly in an unspeakable joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so in a world where the more we know, it can be easy to care even less, Let's fill our hearts and minds with the gospel things of Jesus Christ so that we can be the kind of people who put that joy on display and show the world that there's a better knowledge, a better wisdom, a better hope that comes in Christ.